Welcome to Let's Review RN. My name is Bryn O'Donnell, and I'm a certified adult and geriatric nurse practitioner. I work as a cardiology APN and function as a visiting professor and clinical instructor for a BSN program. This is an independent production by myself, and I am not representing any educational institution. My goal is to deliver a condensed but robust review on topics primarily discussed in Adult Health 1 and 2 and some pieces of pharmacology of a bachelor degree nursing program. Over the years, I've learned that students have an immense amount of confusion and questions when they leave didactic, which makes applying what they are learning nearly impossible to the clinical setting. I want to break down the basics so that you can continue to build upon your knowledge and put the pieces together. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Let's Review RN. Last week, I continued our discussion on kidney stones. I started two weeks ago talking about the five main types of kidney stones. If you remember back, a kidney stone is a solid mass made up of tiny crystals. One or more stones can be in the kidney or the ureter at the same time. There are several kinds of kidney stones. Calcium stones are by far the most common. They often form in men between ages 20 to 30, Calcium can combine with other substances found in your food, like oxalate, phosphate, or carbonate, to form stones. Cysteine stones can form in people who have cysteinuria, a genetic condition passed down through the family in which stones are made from an amino acid called cysteine. Struvite stones are found mostly in women who have high frequency of urinary tract infection. These stones can grow very large and can block the kidney, the ureter, or the bladder and cause complications. Uric acid stones are more common in men than in women, and they can occur in people who have had a history of gout or are going through chemotherapy. Last week, I discussed how kidney stones are formed and really what the main risk factors are for developing kidney stones. This week, I'm going to wrap up our topic with a discussion of signs and symptoms, treatment, nursing interventions, and preventative education that is essential for our patients. Pain is the most widely experienced symptom of kidney stones. The medical term for this type of pain is renal colic, where in the body the stone is lodged determines where the pain is felt most. It is common to feel pain in one or both of the sides of the lower back, but if the stone is lower down, pain can intensify in the groin. Sometimes the pain starts in the back and moves around to the stomach, causing severe spasms or continuous throbbing. Kidney stones are so painful that some women have compared the pain to childbirth. Stones in the renal pelvis can cause pain that is described as deep, dull ache in the flank or costovertebral angle. So flank pain refers to discomfort in your upper abdomen or back and sides. It develops in the area below the ribs and above the pelvis. The costovertebral angle, also known as CVA, is located on your back at the bottom of your rib cage at the 12th rib. It's, it's the 90 degree angle formed between the curve of the rib and your spine. Ureter colic is also a type of pain that is related to kidney stones that is likely because of a lodged kidney stone in the ureter. This type of pain is described as sharp, intense, wave-like pain. The pain can radiate to the scrotum in men and the vaginal area in women. As the stone migrates through the urinary tract, especially the ureters, it can scrape the walls of the ureter causing damage and bleeding for which a patient may see hematuria 
or blood in the urine. Associated symptoms can be the feeling of needing to urinate, but they may void a very small amount of urine at each time, which is urinary retention, which is seen often when the stone is in the neck of the bladder. They can also have nausea accompanied with this pain. They can have signs and symptoms of a urinary tract infection due to stagnant urine. The symptoms can appear as cloudy urine, burning when urinating, or even fevers due to infection. Often patients can be asymptomatic until the stone starts to migrate through the urinary tract. Now let's talk about complications that can occur with kidney stones. Obstruction can occur, which causes back pressure or also called hydrostatic pressure to the kidneys. This puts a lot of pressure on the kidney and the nephrons, decreasing their ability to filter the blood efficiently and effectively. Patients can also develop hydronephrosis, which is caused from an obstruction by, in the ureter by a kidney stone and over time dilation of the renal pelvis, renal calyx, and ureters cause this hydronephrosis. Hydronephrosis is a condition of the urinary tract where one or both kidneys swell due to prevention of that forward movement of the urine. Infection can also occur because of what we talked about previously with stagnant urine. If left untreated, sepsis can occur, which is an infection that spreads through the body, causing symptoms systemically. So how do we diagnose kidney stones? Well, there are many different things. A KUB is an x-ray that stands for kidneys, ureter, and bladder. Again, KUB, kidneys, ureter, and bladder. And this can identify kidney stones. Other things are called IVP, which is intravenous pilogram. It's an x-ray exam that uses an injection of contrast material to evaluate your kidneys, ureter, and bladder and help diagnose um, kidney stones or reasons why you may have blood in your urine or pain in your side. Now, with any diagnostic study that involves contrast dye, you as the nurse need to perform some background checks and gain information. Does the patient have an allergy to contrast dye or shellfish? Does the patient have a re- any sort of renal insufficiency or chronic kidney z- disease? Is the patient pregnant or nursing? And is the patient taking metformin? If any of these situations are in play, you need to contact the physician. Some patients may require an ultrasound or a CT scan for diagnosis. Also, urine analysis can be done and A lot of times, 24-hour urine collections can be completed. An optimal 24-hour urine test should include values for calcium, citrate, magnesium, oxalate, phosphate, sodium, sulfate, uric acid, and the volume collected within that 24-hour period. We need to be sure that the patient is completing the 24-hour urine collection correctly, which includes keeping the urine specimen on ice and they will discard the first urine sample and then continue to collect the urine for 24 hours in the container, again, keeping this on ice. If it's not kept on ice, this can alter the results. Now let's talk a little bit about treatment options and nursing interventions. So remember, most patients will pass the kidney stones on their own in due time if it is less than about five millimeters. However, these patients are going to be in a lot of pain, and passing the stone is not going to be easy, and as a nurse, we will be there to help them. Around-the-clock pain medication is recommended since the pain will not dissipate until the stone is passed. 
As far as treatment for these smaller kidney stones, drinking plenty of fluids throughout the day will help a patient pass the stone. Painkillers will also help the patient, and NSAIDs like ibuprofen are often recommended to help reduce inflammation and help the stone pass. Some patients may require anti-nausea medication, and again, drinking plenty of fluids is highly recommended. You might be advised or might be advising the patient to drink up to three liters of fluid throughout the day, every day until the stone has cleared, unless there's other contraindications with that patient, something like heart failure, where the patient should not consume that much fluid. Drinking plenty of water will help the urine stay diluted, which we want because if the urine becomes concentrated, then the patient is at higher risk for additional stone formation. Increased urine production will help increase the pressure on the stone to help move it along in the urinary tract. We also want to implement strict I's and O's, and this means strict input and output documentation. Documenting how much fluid they are putting in and voiding out is important because if they are consuming a great amount of fluid, but the urine output is low, this could be a sign of obstruction and it definitely represents retention. Patients should be encouraged to ambulate and moved off and move often. If the patient is unable to ambulate, then we will be turning our patients often. This is important because we want to prevent stagnant urine and movement helps push that stone along. We will be monitoring our patients for UTIs or urinary tract infections and collect and strain all their urine. We are looking in the strainer for any stones or pieces of stones that they may pass. This will then be sent to the lab so that they can decipher what the stone is made of and that will help lead treatment and prevention options for the individual patient. To help pass your stone, again, drink plenty of water, lots and lots of water. And this can even be fluids such as tea or coffee. That all counts as fluid intake. Some people say you can add fresh lemon juice or lemons or lemon juice to your water. Um, you definitely want to avoid fizzy drinks or carbonated drinks. And then we want to talk to our patients about not eating or consuming too much salt because this will prevent calcium from being reabsorbed and the calcium left in the urine and not reabsorbed puts the patient at risk for developing calcium-based kidney stones. Implementing diets low in purines, organ meats, beer, seafood like scallops or sardines can help reduce high levels of uric acid and also prevent gout flare-ups. Diets low in spinach, beets, Chocolate, strawberries, nuts, cabbage, tomatoes, and even tea will help reduce oxalate consumption if the patient is at risk for oxalate-based kidney stones. This is why sending the stone to the lab for um, some more testing and that and more knowledge about the kidney stone itself will allow us to and guide us on our patient education. The patient may be advised to continue drinking the this amount of fluid, maybe three liters or more, um, to prevent new stones from forming. And this may be something they need to adapt in their everyday life. Prevention of dehydration is key to prevent to preventing those future stones. If a patient has a stone that is made of uric acid, again, they may be started on preventative medication like allopurinol to help reduce uric acid levels and educated on the correct diet to follow. Also, if they are at risk for calcium-based kidney stones, they may be started on hydrochlorothiazide, 
which is a thiazide diuretic that helps decrease calcium in the urine. Those same patients will want to avoid calcium-based supplements, and these patients do not necessarily need to reduce their calcium intake in their diet. This would only be recommended if they have a metabolic disorder that would require this. Another risk for development of uric acid-based kidney stones is diets high in animal proteins, which is consumed more frequently lately with the low-carb diets and the keto diets that are very popular. As far as treatment goes, if your kidney stones are too big to be passed naturally, they'll usually be removed by surgery. The main types of surgery um, include, first off, shock wave lithotripsy, and shock wave lithotripsy involves using ultrasound or high-frequency sound waves to pinpoint where a kidney stone is. Ultrasound shock waves are then sent to the stone from a machine to break it into smaller pieces so it can be passed in your urine. Shockwave lithotripsy can be an uncomfortable form of treatment, and it often will require some pain medication. You na- uh, patients may need more than one session of shockwave lithotripsy to be successful in treating the kidney stones. Uh, another form of treatment is ureteroscopy. This is an invasive procedure that involves passing a long, thin, catheter-like instrument called a ureteroscope through the urethra and into your bladder. It's then passed up into the ureter. The surgeon may either try to gently remove the stone using another instrument, or they may use laser energy to break it up into small pieces so it can be passed naturally in the urine. Many times a stent will be placed in the ureter to maintain an open ureter to allow for the fragments or the stone to pass easily. Ureteroscopy is carried out under general anesthesia. The last form of treatment I'm going to talk about is PCNL, and this stands for percutaneous nephrolithotomy. Percutaneous nephrolithotomy is also an invasive procedure that involves using a thin catheter-like instrument called a nephroscope. A small cut or an incision is made in the patient's back, and the nephroscope is passed through it and into your kidney. The stone is either pulled out or broken into smaller pieces using laser or pneumatic energy. So PCNL is always carried out under general anesthesia, and patients often have a a nephrostomy tube after. Um, This can be placed during the procedure, but it's placed to help drain fluid from the kidney and possibly collect the small fragments or even the kidney stone. Well, that wraps up our discussion on kidney stones. Thanks to everyone for being here over the last few weeks. And again, if you love this podcast, feel free to rate and review it. It helps bring new listeners every week. And you can always find me on Instagram or Facebook at Let's Review RN. And if there's ever anything you need more clarification about or learning topics you want me to talk about, you can email me at letsreviewrn at gmail.com. This podcast is for general information review purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or nursing. The use of this information or any materials provided by Let's Review RN are at the user's own risk. This content is not intended to be a substitute for educational teachings through students' educational institutes or organizations.